You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, I've been thinking a lot lately about reproducibility. I know that's sort of a really big thing to tackle, but there's been some pretty concrete movements by the program chairs at NURIPS this year um, to to sort of bring that more actively into the conference. And I wanted to to chat with you a little bit about it. So so at NURIPS this year, we're seeing uh, Joelle Pinu is the reproducibility chair, Hugo La Rochelle, who is the program chair for this year, along with his co-program chairs, have written several blog posts about how they have introduced code submission and some other ideas that hopefully are going to bring us closer to reproducibility. And and we've seen this trend in the field for a little while, especially around the conferences. Like I believe these several of these ideas were piloted at ICML and iClear. But what do you think we need to do to sort of bring this more into the, the mainstream of what's expected in sort of the daily production of papers and sharing of information. Yeah, let's start there. And I think there's lots of other issues to, to think about with regards to industry and redacting information and all that stuff. But do you think this is a move in the right direction? So I think it's very interesting. And and first of all, I want to say how exciting I think it is to see that, that Europe keeps innovating, you know, and that you've got, even at this scale, and I can't imagine the work it, it's going to take the additional work to do code review. This is simply the thing that people, puts people off. And I'm very excited about it as a sort of experiment. I think that there's a number of factors going on here because it's, it's an area I've been very... If we just talk about release of code, I became very interested in that sort of from working in computational biology where it's sort of like it's considered if you're not releasing your uh, method what are you doing? Because, you know, a biologist trying to deal with their, you know, their transcriptomic data or something isn't going to sit down and re-implement from your paper. So if they want, you know, if you want your method to be reused, make it available. And there was a whole software called Bioconductor. And we actually, in, in my team, we used to end up like prototyping stuff in MATLAB and having to convert it into Bioconductor and to make it available, a very healthy community. And that's been the case, you know, for 19 years. If you go back beyond that, I think a really interesting paper to read in this space is David Donohoe's work. Well, David Donohoe's, I think it's from days before blog posts. I don't know what we used to call it then. Oh, what? Letters by carrier pigeon? Yeah. Well, and actually play the days before probably like the internet's that widespread uh, where he, uh, and I used to have this on my homepage as a sort of, because this was so rarely talked about in machine learning and I mean, Kevin Murphy, I think, was the one that drew my attention to it after I'd started talking about it with experience from computational biology. Where, and But the basic point he makes is that the, the journal paper or the conference paper is just an advert for the product, which is the code. And I think, so now you can tell how long ago, so when David Donohoe is, is in, I think, signal processing area, but at the time when he was doing this was all around wavelets, when wavelets were hot, when they were the neural networks. You know, maybe they'll be the neural networks again. And they are pretty cool wavelets. Yeah, I don't, right. What will we see at NURBS this but year? It's like, yeah, well, actually, you know, they, they do. we have had some deep wavelet systems coming out. Anyway, yeah, so, but, yeah, so I think that's like late 80s or something. I don't know. Maybe early 90s. Yeah, so... You know, this has been talked about for a long time. And, and if you read what he says, it's a no-brainer. One of my curiosities is why has why has the um, you know, wider community suddenly raised this as, as a bigger problem? 
And I'm not sure I have all of the answers. Clearly, there's all the arguments David makes. But, you know, I was trying to make those arguments for years and no one seemed to care. And actually, in the end, I gave up because I thought I just realized releasing code and creating a shared source code base for my group, it was just such an effective way of doing research. I just I don't care if anyone else is going to do it. You know, it works for us. But so now it's come up again in the second form. We There was a debate about it at um, Dali in South Africa, which was a sort of it, which was designed as a debate just to explore the issues. And it was a Chatham House rules debate. So I won't say who was on which side and was saying what, but just to try and explore the issues. But one of the things that was emerging from that, I think, is is it's not just about reproducibility. If you want to build on what someone else has done, you kind of need access to their code. It's about, I, I think, you know, back in the day, I think, the and I participated in conference about reproducibility. I think people are conflating a few different things here. That actually reproducibility is one thing, but rerunning someone else's code is not scientific reproducibility. Actually, you could argue that the re-implementing from the paper is a better sign from reproducibility. I think it's allowing and enabling the community to build on what others are doing and rapidly make progress, I think is the strongest argument why code release is important. I'd also follow that up with if you're not releasing your code, if you're not releasing your model, you know, unless you have done something absolutely outstanding you're unlikely to be part of that game so i've sort of veered personally from a desire that we should make this more we should actually explicitly introduce things to this thinking well if people don't do it they're just going to get left by the wayside now having said that you know i'm not strongly against the 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 europe's position of having code go in it's something that i've advocated for in the past i just sort of gave up on it but i think i would worry if we ended up being in a position where we're limiting people's ability to submit. Because if we look at reproducibility, there's a few other things going on here. One is the to recreate these results, massive compute is sometimes required, well beyond the capabilities of a small lab. And, you know, just by providing the code, you're not providing that compute. Right. And also, like, if you don't have the same data set, and probably people don't want to release that data set, or, you know, like, that's another of the artifacts that you would need in order to actually reproduce the thing. It's not just the code, it's the compute and the stuff that you used. And I would argue today that the the greatest value a lot of people is doing at creating and tidying up and presenting data sets. And that's almost totally unacknowledged. I also think we went through this very weird period of people publishing code as if it's papers. And then then you get a sort of like, and Fabian Pedregosa, who is one of the lead authors from Scikit-Learn, is, he has like, like some extraordinary number of citations because of Scikit-Learn. And if you talk to him about it, he says, I kind of find it embarrassing because yes, I initiated the project, but I'm not very much involved. And this is an enormous community effort, which a number of people are involved in. And, you know, that every time someone uses it, I get another site. So there's a sort of really interesting credit allocation to a truly valuable code base. It's something that people would share and contribute to, to sort of lay down the knowledge of the community. So I, my personal feeling, I, I just probably sound a bit, you know, I, I, I don't know, I sound a bit, oh, yeah. I'm just going to be quite old man about it. And so these youngsters, you know, finally coming up with the things that, you know, we, we said that ages ago. I feel a little bit like that about it, that there's, that there's overly simplistic arguments 
certainly were being made at the the Dali debate. I think it's a, it's a positive thing. But look, it you know the idea that you solve all the challenges we've got around how academics can keep up with very well funded industrial labs just because you release code is just not just not there. And it's a band aid. And actually, um, one of the changes since um, going back to sort of say let's say 10 years ago, if you were really talking about a quite complex um, variational algorithm that you were publishing in, say, 2009, the code you had to release was a lot more complex than the sort of thing you have to write today with all these auto-diff packages and the sort of these interesting doubly stochastic methods people are creating. I, I would say that modern papers look to me a lot more reproducible just from the basic fact that a lot of the software has sort of caught up but having said all that you know i think it's great we're having a debate i don't think i agreed with everything joel said in the talk but i i'm excited about this initiative excited to see where it takes us but i'm nervous about those that sort of seem to be associating a lot of the challenges we're facing with the community just with code release there's, there's a lot you know basically you know my my Frank answer would be, we should have done code release 15 years ago, and uh, then we would, be, we would be facing a bunch of the other questions that will follow. So it's, it's a great advance, but it, it's taken a long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but at, le at least we're getting to that first layer, right? We can peel that off and then start to dig into the other stuff that's under there. Peel that off, and then we can complain about other stuff. <laughs> Yes, exactly. We can find new stuff to complain about. We can about. say, now something else is the problem. <laughs> that we thought of 15 years ago that we didn't do now anything about. Now something else is the reason that I can't <laughs> do X or Y. Right, exactly. Well, you can find a link to the blog posts from the program chairs at NeurIPS this year on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And the post by David Donohoe from the days before there were blog posts. And we'll reach back into the Wayback Machine and make a blog post. We may have to. I haven't seen if it's been. No, David's, I mean, he's still around. He's at Stanford or something, I think. But yeah, I'm sure it'll be there somewhere. We'll find it. <laughs> we'll, we'll find, we'll it. find we'll it. We'll find it. We'll find it. Our listener question this week on Talking Machines is about a couple of different things. Hard to encapsulate this question, so let's just dive in. AI Now has just released a report on diversity in the field of artificial intelligence, and it seems pretty dire. There was recently an interesting paper in genetics that looked at the occurrences of non-author, quote, acknowledged programmers, unquote, which they call APs, historically in the field. They found that many APs were disproportionately women. Do you think we need to reanalyze our own history? And the, the papers that the they were referring to here are Discriminating Systems, Gender, Race, and Power in AI, and that was recently released by AI Now. And then the paper in Genetics, which looked at the occurrence of acknowledged programmers, is Illuminating Women's Hidden Contribution to Historical Theoretical Population Genetics. So I think the, the thing that we're trying to grasp with is... Other fields are taking a long view historical look at the ways that they defined contribution, and that is creating a different understanding of diversity and contribution to the field. And should we do this here in the field of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning to get a different view on 
who has contributed to the field. Yeah, I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea. But it, I mean, it's got so many complex facets to it. I don't know the paper that's being referred to in genetics, but I can, just from having worked in peripheral areas, I am aware of the trend in population genetics. I, I, I'm not familiar enough to know uh, whether this is true of it, but in certain biological fields, the amount of resource you need to produce a paper is pretty vast. And so you get very interesting politics around the author list. There's like, and, and it's, you know, you, you get a lot of, uh, in some journals, you certainly even have a sort of like some fairly long description about who did what. And you've got issues, you have often technician support, the technicians are preparing things, but often PhD students might be doing similar work to the technicians, particularly when they're starting out just to learn their trade. Was was this paper they, they were they were programmers specifically in the population genetics domain, were they? Yes, they were computer programmers specifically. Yeah, so I mean that's interesting. So it, being population genetics more computational field than other parts of biology, but I would hope, and maybe I'm wrong, that you know historically in uh, machine learning that this hasn't been such a problem I, I maybe it's becoming a bigger problem now because of the amount of work say on data preparation so so interesting like you know i i would argue that the main value of a lot of as i said before well, a lot of what's going on in ml now is good data sets but then you you know i think most ml researchers would if they farmed out their data set work, then they don't, they don't want that, you know, this person, they prep the data, you know. And if you don't understand something like, if you don't understand the difficulty of programming or maybe the, the difficulty of prepping data, you're going to sustain that. Everyone believes that the thing they're doing is the most valuable thing in the universe in some sense. And particularly if you don't have an understanding of someone else's role and what it contributes. So I think that problem may get worse. I mean, I do have an example. There's a paper where I wrote the code for the paper and I'm listed in the acknowledgements. Got it. So you are not on the author list. It's not on the author list, just listed in the acknowledgements, which at the time, I think the interesting thing about it, I, I wouldn't say there's anything necessarily nefarious about the person that did it to me. I, I think they just didn't think about it. I was kind of a bit shocked at the time. I didn't know to say anything um, and I didn't feel it was my place to say anything. And that's part of the sort of relationship of power where you're not going to question, you know, a senior academic about this sort of thing um, because they have sort of power over you. And I think that that's part of the issue in genetics. Whether my suspicion, and if this is a sad thing, if you revisited machine learning papers... Because I think, you know, AI now, I mean, it's really, it's about machine learning at the moment. It may change. I, I don't think you're going to find this the same. It's true because just the history of the field going back to the 1980s, there were just very few women, even in very few women, even there to force to do the programming. And I think that there's a deeper understanding that the programming and the algorithmic derivation is an integral part in machine learning than perhaps there is in population genetics. But if we go back, I think... There is this period in history of going all the way back to sort of 120 years ago where computations were typically done 
by women. It was a job description, right? Com- computer was... Y- it was a job yeah. description. A computer was a human. So automatic computer is what we're working on now. We should say that. Let's get, let's get clear on talking machines. Whenever we say... Let's get specific about our definitions. Automatic computers. Whenever we say on talking machines, to be clear that we're not talking about yeah. humans that do computations, we'll say automatic computers. Automatic electronic computers because, of course, there were water-based computers. What? So on my auto, I'm just going to call on Skype on my automatic electronic computer. I love it. Um, Let's get real down hard in the paint on definitions. Specific language, Neil. Specific language. That's the way to go. Um, so there's certainly this period where, and they naturally evolved to become early programmers, which you know initially was plugboard work, which actually looks a lot what like telephone operators were doing. I'm guessing that that was very heavily involved, and there's all this sort of sense. And but then, of course, it started becoming an important job. And there's this whole history. There's even an article about it: the women of computing, about all these programmers. I think that IBM or somewhere in the sort of through the 50s and 60s, a lot of the early programming, the programming of the moon lander um, was done by a female programmer. You know, there's all this early work in there. And then somehow it um, changes. And the depressing thing is it potentially changes when money starts being associated with program sort of in the 70s and 80s. And you get this uh, flip. Whether, I mean, and there's another complex thing we haven't even touched on, which is something I'm concerned about. And it's difficult to put in the right way. But the, the premise that just because we become a diverse community, we will create diverse algorithms is not correct. If we become a diverse community and just ship single logistic regression algorithms to categorize the whole population in one way or the other that influence billions of people, you lose the diversity in the bottleneck of your algorithm production. And I worry that some of these reports are, they're not, they're they're very clever people, but in the public's mind, they conflate these two things. So I think that's another really interesting issue. Um, And, you know, and as I've said before, it's absolutely true on the gender side, but even more worrying potentially is the lack of certain cultures not being present and certain problem sets not being present in terms of the problem sets that those cultures are dealing with. So, yeah, getting up on the diversity is good. It's another interesting question about, you know, the extent to which we should worry about the history. It's clearly, to some extent, yes, it's good to have role models. But actually, let's worry a lot about the future. Let's worry about making sure, I mean, you know, the thing, if we go back in history and sort of rewrite it that like, oh, well, actually, all these people, all these other people were really the people that didn't doing Revisionist it. history lets you off the hook. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of not true. And it's not true for a reason, because they were making fundamental mistakes around how their society were organized. And to sort of believe that you found it's true is, you know, let's not confuse, let's not say it's because they weren't as good at it or anything else. Let's realize that there was systematic as sort of a Matthew Science article that we talked about recently is highlighting are there today. And let's worry about fixing those problems uh, and worrying about the future. And, you know, I'm sure that the report will help us think about it, but let's, let's not worry about it in a sort of, in a surface way. Let's, let's, let's think subtly like Matthew Syed does and sort of try and get to the heart of the problem and solve the heart of the problem rather than um, a sort of superficial layering. Because, you know, to just, it is so important that we, we get this right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have to make that leap from diversity of experience to creating diversity of thought and approach. Otherwise, we're just stuck in the same thing that we had before. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, we will have links to both of those papers on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a question for us or have been thinking about this topic on your own, you can get in touch with us at TLKNGMCHNS on Twitter or thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. Our guest for this episode of Talking Machines is Graham Taylor of the Vector Institute, and he's also an associate professor at the University of Guelph. When we sat down with him at the Deep Learning Reinforcement Learning Summer School at Vector in 2018, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? So I grew up in a place called London, Ontario, so I'm actually not too far away right now. Nice. I'm being in Toronto than where I grew up. And I, you know, gone off in different places, but you'll always see me coming in my career coming back to Ontario. So, you know, I, I went to to Waterloo as University of Waterloo as an undergrad and did a master's degree there. But during my master's, I felt I needed to gain some global experience. So I went off to France uh, and did most of my master's degree there at Insolion. And from that point, I was actually applying to PhD schools and doing interviews. I remember doing phone calls and trying to decide on a school remotely. Actually, some schools were back at that time, like flying candidates back to do in- it's to do like tours and stuff. So, um, so I did a couple of those even coming back from France and then made a decision to come to University of Toronto. So I started my PhD there with uh, Jeff Hinton and Sam Royce. And five years later was graduating degree in hand and then decided to go off to NYU and uh, do a postdoc there. And that was fun because I had three advisors. <laughs> I worked with Chris Bregler and Jan LeCun and Rob Fergus. So did lots of cool projects with them and then decided I had a wonderful experience in New York, but felt the call to come back home and settle sort of closer to where I grew up and came back to Toronto area and then got a job at University of Guelph where I've been for six years. Nice. Excellent. And Guelph is known for its its engineering program, right? I mean, it's sort of a very traditional in that, I, I guess not traditional, but it's one of the things that it's kind of known for, right? Not as much as agriculture, actually. I'm glad if you've heard about Guelph's engineering program because we're always trying to promote it and we've grown a lot. So we have an, a really creative and interesting program, but which actually emerged from agricultural engineering. So the, the campus is actually, Guelph was formed in the 60s mm-hmm. by the unification of the Ontario Ontario Agricultural College and the Ontario Veterinary College. So they came together, formed the university, and then there's other colleges that have kind of developed. We in the School of Engineering have some roots there, and you'll find we have programs in environmental engineering and water resources engineering, some kinds of disciplines that you don't see in all the other engineering schools. And another thing that's very unique to our engineering programs is that we're non-departmentalized. We don't have like a department of mechanical or a department of computer. We have programs and students specialize, but the design work, the project work, if you do say a, a third or fourth year design project, you're actually required to work with students from other programs. That's fantastic. It seems to offer like huge opportunity for collaboration, which is one of the things that people really need to come into this field with now these days. It does, yes. So you get an opportunity, say, you know, mechanical, a computer, an environmental, and biomedical come together and they work on a project. And great things happen, right? Especially in, in these, these sort of open-ended design courses. 
and we get a lot of feedback from people that employ our students uh, in, in co-op or internship positions that the students coming out of this program where they have to work with others mm-hmm. actually integrate very well in, in industry where, you know, you're dealing with many different dimensions of what it means to be different, like different field, different level of expertise, different culture, all these sorts of things. It's kind of baked. We bake it in uh, in the undergrad program. Nice. Oh, that's fantastic. And you run a lab there, right? Tell me about what questions you guys are asking right now. What are you excited about? Yeah, so I run the machine learning research group at Guelph. And the the main things that we've been focused on are, uh, one, building better algorithms and architectures for deep learning. Now, that's pretty broad mandate. But the things specifically we're really interested in, uh, I'm interested in, are things like generative models, so models that don't just predict but actually create things. And I think that's meaningful as engineers because we want to design things and create better things for the world. And also models that have temporal dependencies. So any kind of data that is a sequence or has some time component to it. And then most of the applications we work on are in the computer vision domain, so teaching computers to see like humans. Among those, most of those projects are sort of human-centered, so uh, understanding human activity or emotion or people's interaction with other people or other objects. Those are the sort of human-centric vision things we work on, but also we do being at Guelph, like I said before, some plant-based vision and some animal-based vision, which are a couple of things that I would say are not going on at other places. Yeah, that's really interesting. The, the Really the only other place I've heard about large areas of research into those are at the African universities where they're working on like large swaths of agricultural data or applications like literally in the field. Yeah. So one one project that we've worked on recently that I'm, I'm quite excited about is a collaboration with biologists who, as you probably know, biologists do a lot of experiments on fruit flies. Um, Drosophila, right? Drosophila, exactly. And people in machine learning have even said MNIST is the fruit flies of machine learning. So we all have sort of our favorite experimental paradigm. And so fruit flies are this, this paradigm with in biology. And I have a postdoc that's co-advised by Joel Levine at University of Toronto and myself. And uh, this postdoc, John Schneider, he's been looking at social behavior in fruit flies and understanding the way that they interact with each other to sort of lead to a better understanding of how we might interact with each other and develop social behaviors. But we've been working, like my component in the project is on the the vision side. And most recently, this has gone from just tracking the flies, but to actually identifying, visually identifying the fly. So not this is not even just like species recognition. So is a fly a fly? But which individual fly is it? Is it like Jerry the fly or Sally the fly and and so forth? And so we can, it's it's surprising that we can actually do this with high accuracy. Because as a a human, you can't do that, right? You look at two fruit flies and they look. It's flies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that's fantastic. So so you don't have a PhD in uh, in biology, in studying like Drosophila. You didn't spend all that time. So how do you get up to speed with a biologist to do the sort of level of collaboration that you would need to create applications that are like fully functional for their field? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is I'm doing the collaboration without understanding a whole lot of biology. So I think when you do these collaborative projects, of, of course, you need some element of understanding the other domain, why it's important, like what your what goals you have and what you're striving towards. But in in terms of my involvement and my group's involvement in the project, it's really on the extracting the identities of the flies themselves. And for that, you don't 
well, at least in the way that we do it, you don't need to have a lot of domain knowledge of biology. Now, we might use these processes to understand what is it about the flies that give them their identity. And I think that's a really interesting question, something that we haven't uncovered yet. The algorithm can recognize them, but what kind of features is it using to recognize the fly? And are the flies themselves using the same mechanism to recognize each other? Are they even recognizing e- each other? Right. Like, yeah, we don't know. I mean, this experiment suggests John, the postdoc, has actually implemented a simple model of the f- mimicking the fly's visual system and showing that he can achieve a, a reasonable level of performance for recognition using the simplified model, basically suggesting that if you had the same kind of hardware for visual processing that the fly did, you would be able to perform recognition. So that's kind of alludes to flies maybe being able to recognize what we call conspecifics. Obviously, the sort of industrial strength, deep learning architectures can achieve better performance on recognition, but that's not what the fly is using. <laughs> right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So, so coming in without the domain knowledge allows you to sort of um, look at the information afresh without the assumptions that a biologist might bring to about like why an animal is using a part of the system that it has access to, or if not, if it is even. Exactly. And I wouldn't take this project on, on my own, right? It's great to have collaborators like John and Joel because they bring that element to the project that is essential. Um, and I think we complement one another. And I think that's one great thing about being with CIFAR, so Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, because they're actually supporting the project and they have this program specifically called Catalyst Grants, which encourages people from different CIFAR programs to get together. So John and Joel, um, Joel's a member in the Child and Brain Development Program, and I'm within the Learning Machines and Brain. So that's right. sort of how how this emerged and how we got all introduced to one another. Fantastic. And so you're not in the engineering department. You don't have engineering departments, but... Um, oh, t- sorry. I am in the School of Engineering. The School of Engineering. We, I'm not in computer engineering department. I'm just in engineering. Got so it. That's how general it is. I'm, I'm in, yeah, I'm in, in the engineering school. Got it. Okay. So in engineering school, writ large, but that makes it even um, sort of like more interesting to try to navigate because there's this dichotomy between in, I think, the community these days thinking about whether or not people who are working in this field are scientists or engineers and sort of where does this sort of practice fall? So how how do you balance those things, the ideas between being a scientist or a research scientist and being an engineer of these ideas? Yeah, a lot of the time I think we're you can play both roles and, and we're doing similar, similar things, whether we're scientists and engineers. And something that stuck with me for six years now is when I went to Guelph to do my job talk, I had invited people from the computer science to come and check it out because I thought they'd be interested. But I know some people grumbled to me and said, you almost didn't get the job because you you did that. Like you invited these computer scientists and we're the school of engineering. At that time, I thought, oh man, that's that's really crazy. I'm just, I'm just going to keep on collaborating with computer scientists and plant agriculture people and environmental scientists and biologists. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what department they're from, we can work together and I mean let's let's get along. So I think things have things have certainly changed and uh, the School of Engineering and the School of Computer Science are really working together now to complement one another with with curriculum. But I think in a lot of universities this happens there's some like rivalry between departments mm-hmm. and often it is computer science and engineers. But I don't know. I started as an engineer in Waterloo. I went to computer science in Toronto. I'm doing engineering again. And I I consider myself 
both like or or a hybrid of of the two mm-hmm. yeah definitely and here we are at the CFAR summer school the the legendary CFAR summer school which you helped to organize this year with the Vector Institute I believe tell us a little bit how that went yeah it was fantastic this school was bigger and better than uh, previous schools in the way that it was really organized quite well by the Vector team. So we have academic organizers like myself and also along with the school is Yasha Bengio and Roger Gross and Aaron Corville uh, helping out. And, and we bring in speakers and plan the curriculum. But for an event like this, there's a lot of other stuff that needs to, to happen. There's a lot of decisions that need to be made, a lot of logistics. And we were supported really well by Vector Institute uh, to put this together. And so we brought 300 students to Toronto this week for five days of deep learning. And we've just started day one of uh, three days of reinforcement learning. Excellent. Excellent. And so are you expecting the school to continue to grow? I mean, it's it's very storied. It's been around. I mean, it's been, had such an impact on so many researchers' lives and work, but it has been much smaller in the past and sort of more intimate. Do you expect it to sort of continue in this trajectory? Or Yeah. So something that was really nice to hear is I think almost half of the people that were on stage presenting lectures referred to being a student and attending a summer school at some point. A lot of them even went further to say that they had been influenced by the summer schools and that was sort of a turning point in their in their careers. So we want we know that this is important. It's a great model and we want to involve as many students in po- as possible and particularly those who would not normally have the opportunity to attend a school like this. Yeah. So this year we as in previous years we work very hard on the application process and try to make sure that it's fair and represents all the different types of people that are interested in attending the school, but I think we'll continue to refine that process and whether we actually grow the numbers or not, it's always open to debate. Because as soon as you go, we, we could have gone to a thousand, I'm, I'm sure. There was enough interest to do do that. But it changes the atmosphere. There's less of the interaction. Question answering. You see even that, like, there's a lot of questions during the talks. But even after the talk, a bunch of students come up and surround the speaker. And right now, even you'll look up, there's like maybe 10 or 15 students sort of surrounding the speaker as, asking questions. But then if we triple the size of the school, then you've got 30 students, right? And they don't have an opportunity to get their questions in or just have that personal contact with the speaker. So I personally feel that this is a good number for us. And maybe we offer the school multiple times a year or we offer schools in more specialized subjects or something like this. But I think a thousand person school would have a it's very just too different much. Yeah. flavor. It's yeah. hard to get things done. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you know, there's tons of people that are interested and we want to give people that opportunity. So if, if you didn't get in this year, I would just say keep on trying. You know, it's every year it's a little bit different. It's probably going to be even better next year. There's a lot of summer schools out there. This is my favorite one, obviously, because I'm involved in organizing. But there's all kinds of opportunities. And definitely try your best to attend a summer school because yeah. it's an amazing experience. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about one of the other organizations that you're involved in. I believe Next, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so Next Canada is a nonprofit organization in Canada which runs three different programs. The first program they started was Next 36, which looked at attracting talented undergrads, senior undergrads, either just, just about to graduate or just recently graduated, and teach them how to build a successful company. 
within Canada. So there traditionally hasn't been as much of a startup entrepreneurship ecosystem in Canada. And so Next was established to look for those rising stars and really give them an opportunity to build a business. And then Next Founders was the next program that came along that looked at business that had been started and needed to scale up and move ahead and was were looking to grow their network and gain mentorship and so forth. So that supported existing companies. And then two years ago, Next AI came together, recognizing there was so much happening in the AI space, looking towards Creative Destruction Lab, for example, also in Toronto, which had then established their own machine learning stream. There was just so much happening in Canada in AI, and there was room for another program that was specific to AI. So I, I became involved in this program as an academic director and something that's special about the next programs that's different than other incubators or accelerators that we is that we actually have a formal curriculum. So we teach courses in on the technical side, so machine learning. We have Sonia Fiddler, Custodor Panis, Marcus Brubaker. They were all teaching in computer vision this year. Joel Pino is actually speaking this afternoon on re- reinforcement learning. Uh, yesterday, we had Graham Neubig from Carnegie Mellon. He was actually a summer school speaker. Some of the people that have come in for the summer school are actually um, partnering up and, and doing lectures at Next as well. So we we cover these different subjects in the program. But then there's also a, a sort of equivalent quality of instruction on the business side, too. That's fantastic. I mean, it seems so crucial to have both the technical side, but then also the business acumen if you're really going to be successful. Exactly. And and the way I sometimes describe it to people sort of in, in a synopsis is it's almost like getting a mini master's degree in AI and MBA at the same time, like in, a, in an eight month period. So, you know, you're not handed a piece of paper at the end of it that says you've got a degree. But you have you, half of a master's degree. <laughs> half a master's degree, but you also got a business, right? And you might even have investment by the end of the program, which often happens with these companies. And they'll you know, either continue on their own or they might even transition into another accelerator program that's focused on sort of later stage companies. So that happens a lot with our teams. That's fantastic. I'd love to talk about another area where you've sort of expanded your expertise. Um, you've said previously in public talks that you used to not think that communication was an important thing or something that people involved in the field needed to do or like think about formally because we're scientists or engineers and we should be focused on that. But then you, you've started doing a lot of it. Tell me a little bit about what changed your mind and, and how you built up those skills. That's right. So I give a lot of credit to CIFAR in, in terms of changing my views on communicating and, and, and speaking to the public and tackling even issues that I don't feel as qualified as others to, to speak about. So this, again, was part of the Israeli Global Scholars Program, and I was invited to present a talk, quick talk, it was sort of like TED Talk style, to the CIFAR board. There's a board dinner, and, and, and many important people in, in Canada were at this dinner, and so it was a big deal. It was more preparation than any talk I had done. You, you know the way that the academics prepare a talk. Some is quite hasty on the plane. Slide, slide, slide. What slide am I on? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Mix and match some slides, you know. So this, I actually had a mentor to work with me, a communications trainer, and had several sessions through Skype with him, Tim, Tim Ward, actually, from Intermediate Communications. He had written a book on called the, the Master Communicator's Handbook. So I went through this book, uh, did sessions with him, and put the slides together with the help of somebody else. And nice. person in front of him. And this is for a 10-minute talk. So this is hours and hours into a 10-minute talk. Never had done that before, so much preparation. 
but the communication training was was really really good it stuck with me but also another part of it was gaining comfort with taking certain questions around responsibility and ethics and long-term implications of AI, these sort of big picture things that people definitely want to talk about, but they aren't as technical, right? Previously, I would shy away and say, okay, I'm the technical guy. I don't really want to take those sorts of questions. But CIFAR told me it's 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 your role as an academic. You're in, you're you know being paid by public funds, you're in the public eye, you have a responsibility to people to tackle those hard questions and they look to you for support. In, in a way, you're kind of, um, as an academic, you're not attached to, and most of the time, another external organization, right? Mm-hmm. So you're motivated to do public good. So people, I think they trust you more as as an, as an academic and therefore it's important to, to be a voice. Yeah, definitely. That's really fantastic. And I think that there's a large conversation going around about the, the responsibility of if you have those technical skills and that technical fundamental understanding to be able to communicate it publicly to the lay public in a way that they're going to be able to, to understand and use those ideas and recognize how they're influencing their lives. That's right. And uh, communication is really important. Being able to teach effectively, help people figure yeah. things out is something I really enjoy doing. Actually, I was having a dinner with Yashua Banjo the other night, and we were talking about the tech transfer program they had set up at Mila. Mm-hmm. And something I thought that was really interesting from that conversation is that they had hired masters and PhD students to work with companies, but not in a way to necessarily solve their problems or act as consultants. Mm-hmm but teach them how to do things, right? So these students had, say, learned from Yasha or Aaron at, at, at Mila and developed these skills over a three or five year period. And now they were gonna go sit down and teach those skills to other people in industry. And so I thought this is a really nice model, sort of um, a group of people that are not really consultants, but trainers, with, but having a really specialized, highly skilled skill set. So I'd love to talk a little bit uh, about your work using time series data to look at human behavior. Tell me about that project and, and where it's going. How, how did it start? Sure. So actually, I started looking at humans in, in video as a postdoc at NYU back sort of around 2009 to 2011 timeframe. And even before that, I was studying human motion in my PhD. So this is something I've been interested in for a long time, just not understanding a lot of the work and the, and the benchmarks surrounding understanding what people do, but also understanding how they feel and, and understanding their social interactions with other people. So most recently, we've had a collaborative research project with four PIs in France and two PIs in Canada. So the other PI in Canada is Greg Morey from Simon Fraser. And this was a three-year project to look at deep learning systems for understanding humans using vision for the most part, cameras and building models. It, it Sometimes it sounds a little bit scary, right? That there's all these cameras out there and they're watching us and they're trying to understand what we're doing. But there are a lot of benefits for processing this kind of data with algorithms as opposed to humans watching it hours and hours and hours of video. I mean, just think of all the tired graduate students that you're relieving of having to like stare at video and code beginning or ending of behavior and, and trying to make sense of, of um, you know, what they're expressing. Exactly. So, I mean, the immediate applications to me that are really exciting are observing people in, say, uh, 
long-term care facilities it's trying to understand if they're if they're in trouble or if there's a problem or they need help uh, but also looking at things like autism as well um, and understanding sort of the interaction between between people and so this this also connects to the work that we're doing with the flies in the in the biology related project because if we can start to build simple models of fly behavior, this would allow us to sort of refine these and eventually scale up to models of not just one or two humans, but a lot of group behaviors over sustained periods of time. So again, like the basic, the vision and the temporal reasoning technologies being built up in the deep learning. And often we, we tend to, as researchers, migrate towards these benchmark problems, yeah. but there's so many interesting problems in, in, in social behavior that, that could really benefit from these developing methods. So how are you, are you using a system of notation when you are trying to understand human behavior? I mean, I feel like there's such a, an intersection between like dance or and using things like Laban notation and trying to like create I don't know, an alphabet or a right. language? So we actually, I did work with Laban and, and this is a very long time ago. I, I forget a lot of it. It was like back in 2009 when we were studying uh, at NYU uh, human motion and, and, and actually looking at dancers specifically. So sometimes we do have um, specific coding for behaviors and, and going beyond behavior to recognize things like style. But then also sometimes an example with the, the Drosophila is that we have to figure out how to code things ourselves. So we define interactions. John, uh, the, the postdoc that's been working with this, had had done some work where they quantify interactions based on how one fly approaches the other from like certain within a certain angle and within a certain distance. And once you have a definition of an interaction and then you have a vision system, which is the part we work on, then you can quantify these things or measure them automatically. Those once you've defined interactions and you can start to build networks nice. of individuals and then you can start to build statistics on those those networks. That's really fantastic. Excellent. I understand that the next program is expanding. You're opening a chapter, another chapter in Canada, yeah? That's right. So we just did an announcement that there's going to be a Montreal expansion of the Next AI program, and this is going to start next year. So we we typically take take applications in October. We've taken that for the Toronto program, but now we'll take applications for Toronto and Montreal, and these will be evaluated over sort of up to December, and we'll do interviews with shortlisted teams. And then this will start in towards the end of January of next year. Yeah, it's going to be great to run the program in these two big cities uh, with a lot of AI going on. And I think we'll, we'll share between the programs a, a lot of, say, the, the curriculum and what's worked well in Toronto. But I think both of the programs are going to have their own flavor, too. So people in Montreal do, do deep learning a little bit differently than people in Toronto. And I think that will be reflected in the, in the different programs and also sort of the different industry sectors that are, that are being specialized. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, Graham, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. It was wonderful to be able to talk with you. It's great to have the discussion. And thanks a lot for inviting me. Graham Taylor. Really fascinating to be able to have that conversation with him. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.